Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. It is a joy to be in the house of the Lord, especially here at the Baptist Church in Westchester. Um, I come here with my daughter, Anaya, and also bring greetings from my husband, Franklin and Soul, uh, who are uh, busy at work at Upper Marion this morning. Um, and as Brittany said, my dog, Athena, who I'm sure is sleeping on her little window seat right now. Um, but yes, greetings to all the members, friends, and visitors of this beloved congregation. Uh, in the name of the Creator God in whom I claim my being and my purpose, in the name of the Holy Wind in whom I find breath and seek wisdom, and in the name of Emmanuel, Jesus the Anointed One, from whom I have received light and power to be a positive and transformative presence in this world by God's grace. Thank you to Reverend Evan Duncan for the persistent and gracious invitation to be here. I'm glad to finally make it. And it is an honor to be a guest in this pulpit with you and Reverend Dr. Zach and to step into the series on the scroll of Esther. Uh, thank you, Brittany, for that gracious invitation. And Brittany and I both celebrated our one-year anniversaries at the Home Mission Societies this summer. And it's been a joy to be oriented to the work alongside her. And I, too, have been so blessed by her many gifts and insights and her spirit. Uh, I would be remiss to also uh, to not give greetings from our executive director, Dr. Jeffrey Hagray, um, Dr. Jamie Washam, who's the president of our board, and all of our board members and staff of the Home Mission Society and Judson Press. It is a joy to be growing in partnership with this church as together we seek to cultivate leaders, equip disciples, and heal communities in the various ways God has called us and prepared us to do in each of our contexts. Um, thank you again for this shared worship, for welcoming my colleague, Reverend Abner Cotobonia, who was here just a couple of weeks ago during your midweek programs with families. And I know there's more in the works, so I look forward to many ways we will minister together. So this morning, we will continue on in our study of Esther, going deeper into the fifth and sixth chapters. Um, now, I don't know, you know, it is summer, so I assume some people have been on vacation and perhaps have missed um, some of the introductory words uh, by Pastor Evan. Maybe those online have not caught up. I know for sure my daughter has not had the benefit of hearing some of the introduction of the first four chapters. Um, so before I go deeper into chapter five and six, if I may just bring up some highlights from previous chapters that will be bearing on our chapters today. Um, but first, please join me as, uh, in a word of prayer. God, we thank you again for the freedom to come into this house of worship, to come into your presence, uh, to honor you, to worship you, to celebrate what you are doing in our lives and to be still for some moments to seek your further guidance for the days ahead. Lord, I pray that as we continue in the word, in the study of this particular story of faith, uh, continue to open up our minds, our ears, our hearts, and equip us 
for what this means for us today. May it be your words that your people hear on this morning, and may I simply be a vessel um, to go deeper into your wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So just briefly going back to the second chapter of Esther, we have then already met three important characters that will come up in our stories today. Esther, again, a woman of Jewish ethnicity, also named Hadassah, by edict and selection of the Persian king, Ahasuerus, becomes his queen. And then there is Mordecai, uncle, guardian, and guide of Esther. Um, so starting in verse 20 in chapter 2, we read, Uh, Again, this story. Now Esther had not revealed her kindred or her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as she was brought up by him. But in those days, Mordecai hung around the king's gate, and on one of those days, he overheard two of the king's eunuchs, two disgruntled eunuchs who were conspiring to kill the king. Mordecai gets word to Queen Esther, who then tells the king on Mordecai's behalf. And after investigation, they find this to be true. And we read in verse 23, both men were hung on a pole, saving the king's life, and that it was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king, the same book that was referenced in our sermon for the children. So that'll come up again today. Moving to chapter 3, the plot advances when we are told that the king has a new head of official in the character of Haman, the fourth character that will be important in our study today. He quickly lets this status get to his head. If you recall, Haman takes to heart the king's orders that all should bow down to him. And when Mordecai, again, the uh, uncle of Esther, refuses to bow down to him, this infuriates Haman. And uh, upon learning of his Jewish identity, Haman plots for the destructions of not only just Mordecai, because he thought it beneath him to just pay attention to this one man, but rather all of the Jews throughout the kingdom, he declares, should be destroyed. The king agrees to this genocide and signs off on the decree. We read in the 12th verse of the third chapter, then the king's secretaries were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Hammond commanded was written to the king's satraps, to the governors, all over the provinces, officials, peoples, in every province, in their own script, in their own language. And the couriers went quickly to do this by order of the king. So Haman went above and beyond to make sure everyone across the land was crystal clear about this plan of the annihilation of the Jews by year's end, 11 months later. So quickly to the top of the fourth chapter, we learn that Mordecai and many Jews, upon hearing of this devastating news and their pending annihilation, enter into the practices of mourning, ashes, sackcloths, fasting, and lamenting. At this point, let me take a sidestep from my cliff notes, for those of you that remember those. (laughs) For the younger folks, it was like a little synopsis of a very long book. Um, Let me take a break from that. It has already been highlighted through uh, Pastor that oddly throughout the whole Hebrew book of Esther that God is not explicitly mentioned at all. 
and the omission of direct references to Yahweh was of great consideration during the human yet divinely inspired process of identifying the writings that would eventually become the Bible as we know it today. Pastors rightly asked the question, can we trust that God is working even when we cannot easily recognize how? It's my paraphrase. I don't know if you exactly said it that way. Or can we trust that God is working even when we don't see it? I would offer that the reference to the practices of fasting and lamenting with the wearing of ashes and sackcloth by the Jews are direct expressions of worshipful faith in Yahweh and an indication of God's presence in this narrative, even though God is not explicitly named. Is that not true of our lives even today as believers, that though when the names of God or Jesus may not be proclaimed from our lips at any given moment, how we live, the practices we participate in, and the rituals in which we might, may partake are evidences of God's centrality in our own narrative, God's very real work in our own lives. We are called to show our faith, not just speak of it. Now, there is something to be admired of people who take no shame in proclaiming faith in God and the name of Jesus Christ. And also, from a discipleship perspective, it is intriguing to me to consider, particularly as an American within the context of this nation, where the prominence of Christian history has been such a prominent part of the development of this country, this question, what does it look like to live out our faith without necessarily having a verbal proclamation of faith be at the forefront? What if we couldn't say the words of God? How might we still might live out our faith? For Christian minorities in many other lands, similar to the Jews within Persia in Esther's time, this is their daily reality, their daily faith expression to be able to live out their life, pursue their faith with vigor, yet be careful about what they speak in public. Here, for us, I think sometimes the freedom to proclaim Christian faith undermines our development of deep-seated, embodied faith. I'll leave that there for your ponderance and get back to the storyline recap. Perhaps that's something you can think about as you uh, put into practice the examine practice that Pastor uh, Evan has introduced. So getting back to the story, we then get to perhaps one of the most quoted parts of Esther. So in grief, Mordecai sends a message to his cousin Hazasa, telling her all that was happening and his influence over her. And in his influence over her, he entreated her to go to the king on behalf of her people, you might recall this. And upon her initial hesitancy due to the palace law, he again sends work back to her and tells her that even though she is in the palace, her ethnic identity will be found out and even her own life may not be spared. And urged her to consider, perhaps she has risen to this space of authority, of power, of influence, for this noble purpose. 
And through these words, we see a change in Esther at the end of chapter 4, almost instantaneously. And she claims her agency and power over her own fate, devised a plan, and in turn gave orders to Mordecai, who of course obliges without dissent. She was ready to perish if she must. So that takes us to chapter 5 this morning. I've entitled today's reflection, All in Due Time, All in Due Time. Now in full disclosure, with my daughter present here with me today, there is a slight possibility that the title may not have been completely inspired by the sacred text that we find in Esther, but perhaps also slightly by the pop song of the same exact title by one artist, Joshua Bassett. I don't know if any of you know him or listen to him, um, it was a song that I was introduced to by my daughter, all in due time, just a few months ago when we went to his concert together. And admittedly, I've listened to many times since, so perhaps it, you know, it was kind of ringing in my mind. Um, but in all honesty, it was in the reading of the scripture, not the lyrics of the song, in which my spirit settled on this four-word phrase, all in due time. And yet, even as I continued in prayer and reflection on the story, I put before me the question, but what? What happens all in due time? What does the story tell us about this? What happens all in due time? I mean, after all, the stirring words from Mordecai to Esther in chapter 4, for such a time as this, presents an urgency, an immediacy. And yet the phrase, all in due time, seems to douse a pitcher of water over the inspiring fire in his exhortation. There's a tension there. Yet in closer look, the story of Esther seems to intentionally note the passage of time, sometimes the prolonged passage of time in between events. Prolonged banquets that extended over months, the preparation of time of the would-be new bride of the king, a period of 12 months of the maidens before they were presented to the king, the casting of lots to determine Haman's decision to wipe out the Jews. This would happen 11 months after the decree was affirmed by the king. And now the fasting of three days with Esther's plan. Why not go right away to the king once she accepted Mordecai's challenge? And again, on the top of chapter 5, we read of yet another delay. On the third day of fasting, Esther takes her chance and approaches the king. She finds favor. He even offers to grant her her greatest desire up to half of his kingdom. And all she simply asked, even with his favor on her side, was for him to attend a banquet with her and accompany and bring Haman to, in his company. So that evening, they do as she has requested. They come to the banquet, and again, the king asks, what is your request? And she doesn't take that opportunity to give him her request. She says, it's simply this, come back again tomorrow. Another 24 hours later, and again, come to the banquet with Haman. And at that time, she will tell him her request. So why not do it then? 
right? Why wait three days of fasting? Why not tell him that first night that she has his ear? Well, scholars have some literary theories about it, but nonetheless, this delay allows for two more important events to happen in their own due time connected to the stories that I have retold um, for you this morning. Later on in chapter five, we hear this first incident. Haman leaving the banquet high on himself, uh, feeling good about that he was on this very VIP guest list of Queen Esther, goes out feeling good and then quickly is reignited in his anger as he sees Mordecai once again at the king's gate, refusing to bow down to him. And Haman goes home with his wife and friends, and we hear of him processing this again, reigniting of anger. Verse 13, yet all of this does me no good, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a pole 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hung on it, and go with the king to the banquet in good spirits. Haman liked this idea, and so he had the poem made. Haman can't even wait for his own plan to come to fruition in due time. He allows his own frustration, his own sense of being um, humiliated or undermined, take his, take matters into his own hand. He even forgets his own thought that it was beneath him to get rid of Mordecai, right? And he decides to give into the pressure. So this will connect then to the second event that happens within the next day. And I'll read this particular pericory for you, chapter six, verses one through 11. As we hear, as we heard uh, to, with the story to the children, on that night, the king was restless. He couldn't sleep, insomnia. He gave orders to bring the book of records, the annals, and they were read to the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Thresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had conspired to kill him. Then the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended said nothing has been done for him. The king said, well, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hung on the pole that he had prepared for him. And so the king's servants told him, well, Haman is there, standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, the king said to him, well, what shall be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor? Haman said to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, hmm, what would it that I would like to be done for me? So he says, for the man whom the king wishes to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crown on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him robe the man whom the king wishes to honor, and let him conduct the man on horseback through the open square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. <laughs> then the king said to Haman, 
quickly. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so, not for yourself, but to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I mean, the irony of this, this is, this is great writing, right? So Haman took the robes and the horse and the robe that Mordecai and led him riding through the open square of the city with smiles on, right? Probably not. Proclaiming, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. It should have been me. <laughs> so here we see this turn of events. In contrast, on one hand, we see that Haman, in his own pride, takes matters into his own hand, undermining the due passage of his own plan and conspires to kill Mordecai because he just can't wait. He can't stand it that this man has the audacity to disobey him. Yet on the other hand, we have Mordecai, one who has done a good deed, who has done something for a king who he does not understand has authority over him, but yet he looks out for his best interest and never asks for a reward. And in God's due time, God honors him. And God not only honors him, it's at the expense of Haman's not only humility, but humiliation. Mordecai's honor came in due time, even as Haman tried to undercut even his own lifespan. Time is such a stronghold in this story, both the immediacy and the, the prolonged passage of time. And when I think about even our modern day living out of our faith, time is an important thing. Time is actually a commodity, particularly in this culture, right? We spend time, we waste time, we count time. I mean, time is money. You know that saying, right? But I don't know if it's just time, but what we see happening in this story, it's not the sin of time. Time itself is not sin, but it's the sin of pride that then causes us to try to manipulate time. Haman's pride forces him to manipulate what was to happen in due time. Pride can come in many forms. It can come in the form of self-indulgence, self-aggrandization. It can come in a sense of how we treat other people as beneath us. It can come as desiring honor. It can come in many forms. And it's such a strong hold on us that it causes us to take matters into our own hands rather than relying on God's timing, God's Kairos time. So I go back to that question that I had, what happens in due time? I think the story here presents that God's plan happens in due time. God's plan of whether it is coming into one's own realization of agency, like Esther, right? At first, we see that she's not quite ready, but in due time, she finally says, yes, perhaps I have come to this situation for such a time as this. Whether it's the God's time in honor given in the case of Mordecai, who was never acknowledged for his good deed, 
until it was time. God's plan unfolds in God's ways. Whether it's honor, whether it's one's own agency, one's own sense of purpose. And we'll see as the story continues to unfold in coming weeks, God's time plan comes in due time, whether it's the deliverance, whether it's the coming of justice, or whether it's God's ultimate fulfillment of plan. How does God's plan live out in your life in relation to time? What does due time look like as you think about as God has been working in your life, in the life of this church, in the life of the broader world? As I think back on my own journey, there are times where there were things that immediately came when I submitted to God's will. Yet there were times that it was kind of like, come on, God, like how much longer have I not been faithful? Brittany and I um, have been learning a tool at work, and there's this saying that's part of it, um, gradually, then suddenly. It's in the context of a tool that we're using on having healthy conversations and um, the, the value is this, that one's, um, one's careers, one's companies, one's very lives succeed or fail gradually, then suddenly, one conversation at a time. I love that um, kind of juxtaposition of gradually, then suddenly. And if I might borrow that and think about that in context of Esther, there are some immediacies, but there's also some gradualies. There are some gradualies that then lead to some immediacies. And isn't that our life of discipleship? That sometimes God calls us for an immediate response, but what happens from there may take some time. That in that waiting, in that trusting in God, whether we are seeing it or not, we are building up the character of Christ. So consider how is the passage and the immediacy of time, of God's time, working in your life as you think of God's plan. I want to bring one more component of time into uh, these two chapters of study and leave um, you know, the future chapters uh, where they will come in due time. Um, I mentioned that um, it was on the 13th day of the first month that the edict to the annihilate the Jews was sent out throughout the land. Now that time frame proves to be quite important. That gives an indication that this is happening right around the coming of the Passover. Again, not explicitly mentioned in the, in the book of Esther, but by the time, you know, and the, the timing might be off by a day or two, so perhaps when the rabbi comes, you can ask her of her interpretation. But the 13th day of the first month which in Hebrew calendar would be Nadar, would be two days before the start of the Passover. So sometime between Mordecai coming to Esther and Esther making this plan and Esther starting the fast, the Passover begins. And she waits three days, and then she waits another day to the second banquet. That puts 
this second banquet somewhere in line with the 17th day of the first month, Nadar, which falls somewhere in, pass, in, in Passover. Now, study shows that while God is not mentioned, while the Passover is not mentioned, while the purpose of the Passover is not mentioned, that perhaps this was a narrative that was playing in Esther's mind. If you recall the Passover, which refers back to the book of Exodus, this was a time of God's deliverance, of God's people from slavery in Egypt. After how many years? After hundreds of years of slavery, the gradually being under the oppression, suddenly in one night, God redeems God's people and releases them from the captive of the Pharaoh. This night of the second banquet, which we'll hear more about, scholars might say falls on that same night that they were released from Egypt. Thinking about the passage of time, God's timing, God's Kairos time connects generations beyond what we can even imagine. Think about that. How many years old is this church? Almost 200. So to even consider that what God is unfolding even here may somehow be connected to what God has been doing over the past 200 years. All in due time. May we trust that God is working and God's plan for our lives is unfolding. As we think about examining what God might want to say to us in these chapters of Esther, chapter 5 and 6, remember this practice that Pastor has presented, being grateful for God's blessings, reviewing the day with openness and gratitude for times when God has been present and we might not have noticed God's working, what are we feeling? What is the message of these feelings? What is the sin that might want to be highlighted, whether it be pride or something else that causes us to take matters into our own hands rather than relying in God's? And then praying for grace that we might be able to be more available, not only to God, but to those God calls us to love. Let us take those reflections as we prepare for the table today, a table that also harkens back to that night that the Israelites were saved from the hands of the Pharaoh, that faithful Passover night that shows up again and again in the unfolding of the narrative of our faith. It is an ordinance for us today not just to partake but to remember, remember God's faithfulness and how faithfulness shows up not according to our timeline, but to God's. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. 
May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.